them and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. And we are continuing our study. We're now in the last one-third of the book. The first two chapters talk about the crisis at the church in Galatia. The next two chapters present the truth of the gospel in a beautiful, systematic fullness, the systematic theology of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. And then the last two chapters are really practical theology. How we apply this to our lives. So I will read from Galatians 5, 7 through 12. You can find it on the back of your sermon outline and follow along or take some notes as we study together. Paul writes, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord. You will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So far the reading of God's Word. Boxing. Wrestling. Running. I think the Apostle Paul was a sports fan. I think if he were alive today, he would have been glued to the Olympics and he would have enjoyed seeing especially the speed skating, those magnificent races uh, of those powerful skaters. And Paul, again and again, uses athletic images and metaphors and illustrations to describe for us the Christian life. And the one he is most fond of is what? The Christian life is a race. Does anybody recognize that character? Where's that from? From the movie Chariots of Fire. Best picture of the year, Hollywood said, when it came out. And there is that great scene, you remember, where Eric Little, uh, a great runner but a Christian missionary preacher, puts on a marvelous running exhibition out in the, in the uh, shires of England, and then the crowd gathers, and he begins to preach. And his first words are, the Bible compares life to a race. The Christian life is like a race. Not just for someone like Eric Little, but all of us. Every one of us, Paul says, not just in our passage in Galatians 5, but back in chapter 2, in Acts 20, in 1 Corinthians 9, in Philippians 3, in 2 Timothy 4, in all these passages, he says, Christian, your life is like a race, and we want to finish that race. 
and claim the prize. He actually begins in verse 7 saying, You were running a good race. They started out great. And I wonder, uh, when Paul says you were running a good race, as he said to the Corinthians, you have to train yourself. You have to go into training. In, um, in, the, in, the, in 1 Corinthians 9.25, he says, everyone who competes in the games goes into training. And I wonder if you've ever thought that as you move toward the prize of heaven, it's going to require training like the athletes do in your own life. The reason I'm glad to raise this today is because sometimes I get concerned that those of you who hear me talk about things like explorations, Christianity Explored, that some of you, when I hand out those daily Bible reading sheets that can enable you to read through the whole Bible in a year, that some of you, when I encourage you to bring your children to youth group, I get concerned that some of you think, I'm just trying to make you busy. Listen, I know how busy you are. I know that your career is demanding and your boss is never satisfied. I know that it takes a lot to manage your home, your apartment, your household. I know that we live in the highest taxed county in the United States of America, that before you buy one French fry or one drop of gasoline, you have to pay an exorbitant and unusual amount of taxes just to live in the house that you own. I understand that. It's not, I'm not so proud. We're number one. We're number one. Highest taxes in America. I know it's hard. This is not about busy work for you. What it is about is training. We need to train ourselves in the Christian life. Some people like training. My next door neighbor, Thomas Awad, went to Chaminade and led Chaminade to the city championship, the New York State Championship. And last year, now at the University of Pennsylvania, my dear next door neighbor, little boy, now grown up, Tom Awad, won the Junior USA 5,000 meters uh, race championship. And this boy, I would watch him run. He would get up early in the morning, and off he would go, and I would be driving through Syosset, you know, five miles away, and there he is, running like the wind. But we live on the top of a hill. Those of you who have been to our home, we live on the top of the hill. And... I tell you, there is nothing more inspiring to me than see, to see young Tom Awad finish his 10-mile run coming up the hill back home. Full speed ahead. Drenched, of course, with perspiration, but strong as he finishes. He's, he likes leaving his comfort zone, getting up early in the morning. He likes the, 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 the workout for his cardiovascular system and stretching his muscles. Some of us don't so much. But if you're going to live the Christian life, 
according to the Bible, you're in a race, and that race requires training. It's not busy work. This is getting to know Jesus Christ. This is cultivating the life of Jesus within you. This is applying the cross, this great moment at the hinge of history, applying the cross to your life so that you can live a new life. They started well in Galatia, and some of you, some of you, one of the best things about this church is there are many people who are just beginning their spiritual journey in our church. It's fantastic, and We can see your enthusiasm. We see your interest. And you are starting well, reading through the Bible with virgin eyes, you know. And you come to explorations and you say, this is fantastic. They started well. But then something happened. And in point number two, Paul says, who cut in on you? What is tripping you up? Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? And this, this is very disturbing for Paul. The word um, who cut in on you is the word that is used for tripping your fellow competitor in the race. And when I talk about that, Those of you who are older like me, you remember Mary Decker Slaney. Mary Decker. When I was 20 years old, I think I was 22, 1984 Olympics, do the math, Nina, for me. (laughs) Mary Decker was the fastest woman in the world. She ran like the wind, and all of America watched her run. And the Olympics came in Los Angeles, the great maybe the greatest Olympic spectacle that was ever held. And Mary Decker was racing, running the race of her life. But there was this other woman, marvelous runner from South Africa, a barefoot runner. You can see she's barefoot. Her name? Zola Budd. I still remember. As soon as I read this passage, I thought about Mary Decker and Zola Budd. And they were in the middle of the pack when suddenly Zola stepped in such a way that their legs crossed. And Mary Decker Slaney, you see her there, fell face first into the gravel and rolled off the track. And her Olympic dream of the gold medal was shattered in a moment. It was not intentional. I I don't believe that it was intentional. But this word, who hindered you, who cut in on you, this is the word that describes what happened. And America saw Mary Decker, her face in her hands, tears streaming down her cheeks. And Paul says in the Christian life, this can happen to you and to me. That's what he's talking about. And it happened to the church at Galatia. They started out well, and every good intention uh, was there to walk with Jesus and to run the race. But what tripped them up? Now, if you're half awake a third of the time in this series, you know that for them it was this 
religion of works that was superimposed upon the gospel of grace. And, and one of the things that trips Christians up is religion. This idea that my performance of religious activities, it's almost like busy work. My performance of religious activities has a cumulative effect that makes God happy with me. You call it law-keeping, performance Christianity. And apparently there were people who cut in right in front of them and knocked them off track with this. Even Barnabas, remember? Even Barnabas, the wonderful, charismatic leader, he was led astray. Religion. You know, in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, you have screw tape, the senior devil. He is advising Wormwood, a junior tempter, what to do with this young man who's become very interested in Jesus Christ. And the young man finally starts going to church and listening to sermons and opening the Bible, and he's on his way. And so Wormwood is assigned to tempt him, to knock him off the path and out of the race. And you know what Screwtape says to him? He says, try some religion on him, Wormwood. For a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. Let's get him lighting candles. Let's get him running off checklists. Let's get him busy in all kinds of performance Christianity and congratulating himself for it. Oh, that's so amusing, the devil says. Religion can trip you up. Be careful. Second thing, it's not in the book of Galatians, but it's all through the New Testament. The second thing that trips us up on the north shore of Long Island is prosperity, is money, and the love of money. Jesus talked a lot about this. And uh, Jesus told us, and we just need to hear this, that it is harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the eye of a needle is not a sewing needle. It was a little gate, but a low, very low gate. And a camel had a, would be, how could a camel bend way down and get through this gate? It was called the eye of a needle. Why is prosperity something that can get in and trip us up? Well, Go back to screw tape because he's talking to Wormwood, and here's what he says. He says, Wormwood, I want you to know that prosperity knits a man to the world. It means it ties him down to the world. He feels that he's really finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. As a result of the love of money, he loses his vision of heaven and his desire for heavenly things and for Christ. And he gets knit, sewed, captured by the world. Money becomes our Lord. Can you, can you can at least see how that could happen in your life? I can see how it can happen in my life. But the third great entanglement that the New Testament speaks about is sin, right? Sin is what tangles us up. So subtle, so many ways. Hebrews 12, 
verse 2 says that sin entangles us and trips us up like an octopus that uh, can reach up and, and sort of grab a hold of your ankle. I'm thinking of some old movies that I saw as a child that still <laughs> terrify me. You know, and the, one tentacle grabs hold of you and you take that first drink and you get drunk that first time and then the other tentacle comes up and wraps around you and the next night you start drinking again and it grabs you and it tastes so good going down and then before you know it, the pattern of drunkenness is in your life. And screw tape says to his junior tempter Wormwood, he says this, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder, which is a sin Screwtape loves, and he likes to promote murder, but he says, murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestone, without signposts. And that's what sin does. We just fall down that pathway so easily, so easy. You could trip them up by making them comfortable with their sin. And when leaders in the church promote these things and permit and encourage, whether it's religious activity and busyness or it's just the love of money or whether it's sins of all kinds, when leaders do it, Paul says these people are like yeast. That's what the text here says, like yeast. doesn't take a lot. In fact, this, he's quoting a baker's proverb of his day. And, and you, you add a, a little bit of yeast into the bread, and it works its way through the whole dough. And pretty soon, not only is your life infected, but your church is infected by it. Jesus Christ spoke about this in Mark 18 Mark 8, verse 15, and we will be studying the gospel of Mark together. Do you need to hear Jesus say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees? They were the ones promoting a kind of religious a dogmatism. You see, Jesus said, beware. Do you hear him? It's not just John Yenchko saying, beware. This is Jesus Christ saying, beware. Be aware of the things that can trip you up. Mary Decker, as you're running along, pay attention to the people around you who may cut in to trip you up. And then we see a side of the Apostle Paul we don't see all that often. Because he's the apostle of love. But he hates them. He hates those who trip up his church. He has a violent reaction to them in verse 10 and verse 11, especially in verse 12. Our medical students here and our surgeons here in this church can tell you what he's talking about there. He says they hurt the church because they throw the church into confusion. And they begin to persecute the church. And what does he say in verse 10? He says, they will receive their just judgment. James chapter 3, verse 1. This is one of those verses that makes me break out in a sweat. James 3, 1, do you know it? 
Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And Jesus warns that if you cause little ones to sin, what does he say in Matthew 18, verse 6? If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's why Paul says, I wish they would go the whole way. What were they talking about? They were talking about circumcision. All right? Go ahead and do the circumcision. That's pretty delicate surgery. He says, I wish that scalpel would slip and they would castrate themselves. But in the middle of all... In the middle of all this, point number three, in the middle of all this, Paul says something beautiful. I love in verse 10 where he says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. And what he's saying is that you'll, you'll stick with me in what I've just written in the first four chapters. I'm confident in the Lord that you'll take no other view, that you'll hold to the gospel. And, and what, we're, what we're to understand is he's saying it's better if you don't get tripped up, but that does happen to people sometimes. And he wants you to know it hurts when you fall. Remember Mary Decker Slaney, gravel in the face. It hurts when you fall. But he says when Christians get off track, if they are Christians, they will recover. They will come back. They will seek the Lord. It's what we call in our church, the Presbyterians have long cherished the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And we believe this is good and right to believe. Philippians 1 verse 6, what does it say? It says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What a wonderful verse. Some of you have lived that story, haven't you? Some of you need to get up in testimony time and tell the story of being tripped up and yet how God brought you back, brought you back, how He was faithful, how the Spirit wooed you, how the Bible spoke to your heart and called you back, how Jesus touched you. Why is He confident? Why is He an optimist? He's an optimist because He says, You're in the Lord and I'm in the Lord, and I'm trusting in the Lord, and I'm committing you to Christ. Who I'm committing you to the Lord. Wonderful verse. So if you are here today, and you've been tripped up by religion or prosperity or sin of one kind or another, what a great day this is, because I want to tell you I'm confident that you will seek no other way. You will come back to Jesus and Today is just a good day for you because you're here and you're hearing this. And what a marvelous story you have. I remember when I was in, in high school and I was on the swimming team and I was not that good. I was, media, I was middle of the pack, you know, good enough to make the varsity team and be in some of the events, but I wasn't like the stars. And one day we had a workout. Our coach gave us a workout that I thought was going to kill me. 
about halfway to it, through it, I came into the wall in the shallow end and I stopped and I stood up. And I said, this is ridiculous. This is killing me. I have better things to do with my time than train for this. And the guy who was behind me, his name was Dale Jack. Dale came flying into the wall and he stopped. He looked at me. Then he stood up. And I said, this is nuts. He's going to kill us. And Dale Jack looked at me and he said, Yenchko, why are you here? Don't you come to practice to improve your time? And then he shot off the wall and off he went. And I'll tell you something. The next 15 seconds were one of those longest moments of my life. You know what I'm talking about. For 15 seconds, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And maybe you're at that spot right now in your life. You know, I've gotten kind of cold to Christ. I'm tired of the training. I don't like reading my Bible anymore. I don't like going to small group. I don't like going to Sunday school. I don't like uh, uh, having a prayer time. And family devotions, you know, we tried that. It doesn't work. Those 15 seconds were like the longest of my life. Because I knew that if I stayed in the water, it meant more pain. It meant more work. It meant more sweat. It meant more effort. But as I watched Dale Jack get further and further toward the other end of the pool, I said, I've got to get going. I took off from the wall, and I went back in. I finished the workout. Now, I didn't get any gold medals. I'll never get a gold medal as an athlete. But I did finish the race. I'm grateful that my brother confronted me and, and helped me forward. I'm an optimist. Those of you who know me, you know that I'm an optimist because I believe in the power of the cross to change lives. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ will flourish and grow. I'm, I'm an optimist. Are you? Do you believe God is going to do great things in your life, in the church family's life? I believe. And I'm so excited to just look forward and walk forward in the future with you as we do this together. So what does Paul say? Verse 11. He says, I'm really optimistic because of the cross. Keep the cross before you. He says, I preach the cross. And it's a little difficult to translate. He says, look, I don't preach circumcision. Well, thanks, Paul. You spent five, four chapters telling us why you don't preach circumcision. He says, but, but that would have been the easy way. He said, I could have preached circumcision and everybody would have liked me. But he goes up and down across Asia Minor preaching the gospel of free grace, salvation through the cross of Christ in Christ alone, justification by faith alone, and it drives the religious people crazy. And he says, they persecuted me. They kept persecuting me. But I won't stop preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. You know the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers? We're going to sing that in a few minutes. You know that hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers? With the cross of Jesus going on before. Like a mighty army is the church of God. 
with the cross of Jesus. We preach the cross. Now, we are warned, and, and uh, Elias and Bernie read for us in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It will be a stumbling block to people. Why? Because the cross tells me I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. It's a stumbling block. And it's foolishness to other people who say, come on, we live in the 21st century. We live in the 21st century. Who believes in a God who needs a blood atonement for sin anymore? That's barbaric. Until you meet the holy God. Until you understand that God is holy. And then it makes perfect sense to you. Don't let this trip you up. Don't let the cross trip you up. If you're here today and, and you find it, it's a stumbling block, the word, the word, Greek word is scandalon. What does that sound like? Scandal. Yeah, the cross is scandalous to our pride, to our sense of self-importance and self-righteousness. The cross is scandalous. And it's foolishness, but don't let that trip you up. We need the cross of Jesus going on before. That's our boast. In a few weeks, we'll come to Galatians 6.14 where Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And I will close with this. Hebrews 12 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before Him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I have no interest in keeping you busy, but I call you to get back in the water and swim. Join the race. Let's pray. Our Father, you've brought us again to the place to the cross where Jesus died for our sins. But it is there, not only that we die to sin, but that you give us new life. For there the great exchange happens. My sin placed on Jesus. His righteousness credited to my account. I die with him. And there new life comes and we are made new. So, we thank you. Help us always to see the wonderful cross and then run the race that is set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.